You ever have one of those days when you're preparing uh, to uh, come to church and preach and your six-year-old corgi bites a hole in your pants? <laughs> Apparently, I'm having one of those days today. But, uh, yeah, our, our, we've got two corgis. One of them six, and his name's Reese, R-H-Y-S. And uh, he's named after an ancient uh, Welsh king, because he's a Welsh corgi, of course. And so his proper name is the, the Lord Reese, because that was this king's title. And, uh, and so every once in a while, you know, he gives us the privilege of being able to feed him and, and that type of thing. You know, he really owns us, not the other way around. But uh, uh, he had a birthday just the other day, and on his uh, Facebook page, he does have a Facebook page, by the way, uh, because Facebook is very, you know, legitimate. So um, on his Facebook page, someone had posted uh, that it was also National Donut Day that same day. And so I think that this morning when he bit a hole in my pants, uh, that he was basically angry that I did not give him a donut on his birthday. Uh, So anyway, you sort of deal with these things, and, uh, you know, he got a little bit bold today, but I want to ask you a question about being bold. What would it take, what would have to inspire you to do something incredibly bold? Now, God makes all of us differently, and some of us are, are naturally very bold and outgoing and daring and adventurous, and others of us are not. Others of us are more quiet and reserved, and uh, we would hardly dare do anything that might, you know, prove to be embarrassing or something like that. But I think given the right circumstances, any of us might become bold in very unexpected ways. You know, what would it take to make you bold to do something that's sort of uh, beyond your normal nature to do? Maybe if somebody was messing with your kids or your grandkids, you know, that, that'd snap you right into it real quick, wouldn't it? Um, that, that might make you bold, or, or maybe if there was some great injustice that was about to occur, especially if it was about to occur to you, occur to you uh, you might become more bold than normal there. But let me ask you this question. Would you be bold if God's reputation was on the line? Now, that might sound like a strange question because, you know, God's much bigger than us, and, and certainly He can uphold His own name. Uh, he doesn't need our help. You know, you can sort of justify it a lot of different ways. But, but the reality is that uh, there, might become, there might come times when we have to be bold to uphold God's honor, to uphold God's name. There's a guy in the Old Testament about 2,500 years ago by the name of Ezra, and he thought that God's reputation was something worth being bold about. And let me explain In his day, it was 60 years previously that about 50,000 Israelites who were left in captivity in Babylon came away from Babylon, went back to Jerusalem and back to the Holy Land to replant their lives there. That happened 60 years before Ezra came on the scene. And now Ezra was getting ready to lead a second group back because not all of them came back on the first journey. In fact, there would be three journeys ultimately But Ezra was getting ready to lead a second group back to the Holy Land, back to Jerusalem, back to the temple. 
And so Ezra got everyone ready, and he tells us who they are in Ezra chapter 8. Take your Bible, if you have access to a Bible, and turn to Ezra chapter 8. Ezra is easy to spell, E-Z-R-A. And Ezra is right there in the Old Testament, Ezra chapter 8, verses 1 through 14. Ezra gives us a list of people who are ready to go back to Jerusalem from Babylon. Now, this is another list of men and their families, and let's just be quite candid. For most of us, this list doesn't really mean a whole lot. You know, it doesn't have any real personal meaning to us because uh, we don't know who a lot of these men are. And so you might sort of wonder, why in the world did Ezra go to all the trouble, because he's writing this, to give us these details. And, well, let me explain what's really going on. You see, when you and I read the Bible, or when you and I go to church, like you are today, or, or you and I, when we pray... We usually come at these spiritual activities with an attitude that says something like this. All right, what's in it for me? God, speak to me. And that's natural because, I mean, you are living your life and you know what's going on probably in your life. And so when we come to God's Word and we read God's Word or we we come to church or we pray, we usually focus on the things that directly apply to whatever's going on in our lives at the moment. And so, when the Bible has a section of Scripture that doesn't directly apply to our lives, well, we usually just skip that part. Or, or when we come to church and the preacher you know, has the audacity to say something that might not directly apply to our lives at that very moment, well, we just sort of skip that part, you know, eat the meat or, and spit out the bones, that type of thing. Or when we pray... You know, we usually know how to pray, maybe about things that are happening to our lives, but maybe we're not so good at praying about things that don't directly apply to us. And so maybe, maybe we skip that part. But listen, here's what we're missing when we have a perspective that never sees beyond our personal lives. We miss this, that God has a plan that he is unfolding in history. And sometimes that plan applies directly to you, and that's so wonderful when it does. And sometimes part of that plan doesn't apply so directly to you. You see, when we're talking about things like the first 14 verses of Ezra 8, we're talking about the history of the Bible. And the history of the Bible is not just... Plain, old, boring history, like Eeyore is telling the story, okay? The Bible's history is redemptive history. It's the history of God's plan to save us and more than just us, okay? And so when we come across a list of family records that might, on the surface, not have anything to do with our lives, we need to remember this very important fact that God was preserving the promise of a Messiah. That Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come after generation upon generation had continued the Messianic line. 
And so when you come across family records like these, or you come across the genealogies that we read about of Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel or in Luke's gospel, remember this very important fact that God always keeps his promises. It is provable in these histories that God keeps his promises. And so let's read Ezra chapter 8. Verses 1 through 14, I'll read aloud. These are the family heads and the genealogical records of those who returned with me, Ezra's writing this, from Babylon during the, king, the reign of King Artaxerxes. Gershom from Phineas's descendants, Daniel from Ithamar's descendants, Hattush from David's descendants, who was of Shechaniah's descendants, Zechariah from Parash's descendants, and 150 men with him who were registered by genealogy, Elihoani, son of Zariah, from Pehath, Moab's descendants, and 200 men with him. Shekaniah, son of Jehaziel, from Zatu's descendants, and 300 men with him. Ebed, son of Jonathan, from Aden's descendants, and 50 men with him. Jeshiah, son of Athaliah, from Elam's descendants, and 70 men with him. Zebediah, son of Michael, from Shephatiah's descendants, and 80 men with him. Obadiah, son of Jehiel, from Joab's descendants, and 218 men with him. Shalomoth, son of, son of uh, Josephiah, from Bonnie's descendants, and eight, uh, 160 men with him. Zechariah, son of Babai, from Babai's descendants, and 28 men with him. Johanan, son of Hakatan, from Asgad's descendants, and 110 men with him. These are the last ones from Ad- Adonakam's descendants, and their names are... Eliphalet, Joel, and Shemaiah, and 60 men with them. Uthai and Zachor from Bigvi's descendants, and 70 men with them. Now, if you were to go back and you were to add up all of the numbers of the people that were coming back with Ezra, you'd, you'd figure out pretty quickly it adds up to less than 1,500 people. We'll just round it up, 1,500 people, okay? This is far fewer Then the 50,000 people that came back the first trip 60 years before. Why on this return were there so few that came back with Ezra? And we know that there's a third return that's yet to occur. So we know that there's more Jews still living in Babylon at this time. But only 1,500 come back with Ezra. Why? Well, we're not told explicitly in the text, but I believe that there is a reason. I believe that a lot of the Israelites who remained in Babylon after the first return grew comfortable. Babylon was their home now. You know, they had lived there, their families had lived there for 60 years, and the reality is, not just the 60 years previously, but some of them had been there 70 more years on top of that, 130 years of establishing roots. You know, if you spend enough time at a certain place that place becomes your home. And after a generation or two or three, it becomes more and more difficult to return to your original homeland. And we can understand that. I mean, that's understandable. How many of us really want to close down everything we have, sell our house, and move 900 miles away and start over? Because that was the length of their journey, except they weren't going to do it by vehicle. They're going to do it by foot. How many of us would be willing to do that? We, we would have to have a very special reason if we were going to have to do something like that. And they had a special reason, but I think that they had forgotten the reason. 
I think the real issue is that many Israelites that lived in Babylon for that long a period of time had lost their identity. The idea that they were God's chosen people, that they were specially called out from among all of the other nations of the earth to be God's people, the idea that they were witnesses of Yahweh, the Most High God, they were witnesses to the other nations, that idea had largely been forgotten. God's people had become so enmeshed with the lifestyle and the culture of Babylon, of the world, that they had lost all of their distinctives. And I think we should learn a lesson from this. We can become so absorbed into the fabric of this world that we forget who we are as believers. Do you remember what Jesus said? To the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2 verse 4. He said, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. Question, I wonder, have you grown so accustomed to this world that your faith in Christ is growing dim? You know, we live in this world, but our eyes should remain on Christ. And it's so easy, it's so easy to take our eyes off of Christ, isn't it? I mean, this world is so flashy. This world is so tempting. It's so easy to take our eyes off of Christ. But if you find yourself in that condition today, put your eyes back on Christ. If we begin to take our eyes off of Christ and don't return, then we will never become who God wants us to become in this life. And we will never receive what God wants to do with us in this life. And so even though a large portion of God's people in Ezra day chose to remain in Babylon, Ezra begins this journey with the 1500. And he just gets a little ways out of town, a few days out of town, and he comes to a river, a tributary of the Euphrates River called Ahava. And he calls a halt to the entire movement. 1,500 people says, wait, wait a second, wait a second. He, and he calls a halt to everything. And they all stop. Because Ezra wants to do an, an assessment of the situation before they got out too, too far out of town. It's like when you go on vacation and you have to stop in mule shoe because someone forgot to go to the bathroom in Littlefield, you know, that type of thing. Or, you know, you, you, you start to go out on vacation and, and mama says, did everyone remember their toothbrush? And there's always someone that forgot their toothbrush, even though 15 minutes before mama said to everybody, get your toothbrush. But anyway, except this time for Ezra, there was a different problem. They forgot something different. Let's read about him, verse 15. He says, I gathered them at the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there for three days. And I searched among the people and priests, but found no Levites there. They didn't forget to go to the bathroom. They didn't forget their toothbrush. They forgot the Levites. Now, you might wonder, who are the Levites? Well, 
The Levites are a special order of priests who were set apart to minister to the Lord and to bless God's people and to serve in the temple. And that's where they're going back to. They're going back to Jerusalem, to the temple. In other words, they forgot the spiritual leaders. The spiritual leaders should have been the ones helping to lead the way back to the temple in Jerusalem. But instead of doing God's work, the spiritual leaders were just sort of, I guess, doing their own thing in Babylon. You know, spiritual leaders need to be very careful about this. Because when God calls someone from God's people, calls them out, and He appoints them to do a special task, and to serve God's people, and to lead God's people spiritually, and that person refuses to answer God's call, God can very easily raise up somebody else who will do it. I mean, the Bible is replete with examples of this. I remember one story where God gave a donkey the ability to speak because Balaam was so stubborn and so blind that he could not see the angel of the Lord standing in front of him. I remember another story where the Lord raised up a boy named Samuel to be the leader of God's people. Why? Because the high priest's sons, Eli's sons, failed to lead God's people properly. I remember in the New Testament, Jesus didn't choose the religious leaders of the day to be the leaders of his church. He chose fishermen and tax collectors. When Jesus entered Jerusalem as king, riding the colt, the people were waving palm branches and they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And someone asked Jesus about it and he said, if they don't sing my praise, the rocks will. Listen, if God can replace people with rocks to do his business, God can replace anyone, including the leaders. These Levites were in danger of losing a very special and privileged position of being able to serve God's people and I would say that if I or any under-shepherd, any pastor at any church fails to feed God's flock so that they remain hungry and malnourished, God can very easily set me or any other leader aside and raise up a faithful leader who will help God's people be built up spiritually. It is a serious thing to serve the Lord God. So Ezra knew he needed to address this problem of having no Levites on the journey. Let's read verses 16 through 20. Ezra writes, Then I summoned the leaders, Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, apparently there's two of those guys, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, as well as the teachers, Joiarib, and a third guy named Elnathan. All right, there we go. We got three of them. I sent them to Ido, the leader of Casaphia, with a message for him and his brothers, 
the temple servants at Casaphia that they should bring us ministers for the house of our God. Since the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a man of insight from the descendants of Mali, the descend, a descendant of Levi, son of Israel, along with his sons and brothers, 18 men, plus Hashabiah, along with Jeshiah, from the descendants of Marari, Marari, I should say, and his brothers and their sons, 20 men. And there were also 220 of the temple servants who had been appointed by David and the leaders of, for the work of the Levites. All were identified by name. Got it. Problem solved. We got some Levites. Second problem. They were about to begin a 900-mile walk with women, children, animals, silver, gold, and no security detail. No army. No police. Nothing to protect them. And not only did they have no security detail, but Ezra had gone so far as to tell the king, God will protect us. Here's how Ezra put it in verses 21 and 22. We read, I proclaimed a fast by the Ahava River so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us, our dependents, and all our possessions. I did this because I was ashamed to ask the king for infantry and cavalry to protect us from enemies during the journey since we had told him the hand of our God is gracious to all who seek him, but his fierce anger is against all who abandon him. Ezra had boldly proclaimed God's favor on his people and God's anger on those who oppose his people. God's favor on those who are faithful to him and God's anger on those who would abandon him. And it would look like Ezra's faith was weak. It would look like Ezra was abandoning his faith in God. If Ezra then went back to the king on his knees and said, Oh, we need some people to protect us from all the bad actors out there. Because the king would look at that and say, I thought your God was able to handle that. And so in order for God's honor not to be diminished, Ezra decided not to go back to the king. You know, this is a very important point. We should never give anyone a legitimate reason to laugh at God. We should never, because of our lack of faith, ever give anyone a reason, a legitimate reason because of our lack of faith, to curse God or to disbelieve in God. If they are to do any of that, let it be because of their own ignorance, not because we don't have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is a God who can do all things. And so our faith needs to be a bold faith. Upholding God's honor among unbelievers should be a consideration when we make important decisions. I'll give you an example. <clears throat> About a year ago, not long after the COVID-19 pandemic hit, as you probably know, the U.S. government offered PPP loans, Paycheck Protection Plan loans, to businesses and other entities to make sure that they could pay their employees. And, and this included, this offer for these loans included religious institutions like churches. 
And a portion of that loan was completely forgivable if you met certain conditions. And so for a lot of churches, it meant that the government was giving them free money. And who knew the future? Money that might be needed. If the economy came to a crashing halt and donations stopped coming in, how would a church pay its employees, for example? Well, at first I had mixed feelings about whether to seek out a, uh, this, this loan, this forgivable loan from the government. I mean, part of me said, well, you know, hey, everything belongs to the Lord anyway, including money that comes freely from the government. Um, and if everything belongs to God, maybe this forgivable loan is a way of God blessing us during a time of need. I, I don't know. You know, but, but I, it just didn't sit right with me uh, when I began to think that way. And I wasn't satisfied with just making a cursory justification to get some uh, free cash. Because I always believe that it's important to do the right thing. I believe that the right thing is always the best thing. I'll tell you right now, you decide to always do the right thing, sometimes it'll cost you. Sometimes it'll cost you financially. Sometimes it'll cost you a relationship. Sometimes it might cost you who knows what. But you got to be willing to pay the price, whatever it might be, if you're dedicated to doing the right thing. And so I've continued to research the, what the right thing would, would be to do in that instance. I researched the scriptures, and, and when I, as I began to research the issue, the, the idea of God's honor among unbelievers came to mind. Because I realized that there might be a day, if we were to take that loan, that an unbeliever might say, you know, the only reason your church exists is because taxpayers bailed you out. My taxes went to pay for your church. And I discovered that there was a loose parallel in Scripture. In Genesis 14, the king of Sodom offered to give the spoils of war to Abram. And in Genesis 14, verses 22 through 23, this is what Abram said. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap of anything that belongs to you. So you can never say, I made Abram rich. You see, Abram's success or failure would only be attributable to the Lord. And that, when I read about that, that's what I wanted for Broadview. We never applied for those loans, and we never received a dime from the government. And the Lord sustained us the Lord sustained us through your generosity, through your faithfulness. And I am grateful not only that the Lord sustained us, but more importantly, I am grateful that I am allowed the privilege of serving faithful people like you. It means a great deal to me. The Israelites of Ezra's day needed to be sustained not by the king's armies but they needed to be sustained by God's own hand and Ezra wanted to uphold God's honor 
So this is what Ezra did in verses 23 and following. We read, So we fasted and pleaded with our God about this, and He was receptive to our prayer. I selected twelve of the leading priests, along with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of our brothers, I weighed out to them the silver, the gold, and the articles, the contribution for the house of our God that the king, his counselors, his leaders, and all the Israelites who were present had offered. I weighed out to them 24 tons of silver, silver articles weighing 7,500 pounds, 7,500 pounds of gold, 20 gold bowls worth a 1,000 gold coins, and two articles of fine gleaming bronze, as valuable as gold. Then I said to them, You are holy to the Lord. And the articles are holy. The silver and gold are a freewill offering to the Lord God of your ancestors. Guard them carefully until you weigh them out in the chambers of the Lord's house before the leading priests, Levites, and heads of the Israelite families in Jerusalem. So the priests and the Levites took charge of the silver, the gold, and the articles that had been weighed out to bring them to the house of our God in Jerusalem. We set out from the Ahava River on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. We were strengthened by our God, and He kept us from the grasp of the enemy and from ambush along the way. So we arrived at Jerusalem and rested there. For three days. Ezra's boldness in going on this journey without security detail, his boldness in defending God's honor paid off. They arrived safely in Jerusalem, and then they put into practice another eternal principle accountability. Verses 33 and 34. On the fourth day, The silver, the gold, and the articles were weighed out in the house of our God into the care of Merimoth, son of Uriah. Eleazar, son of Phinehas, was with him. The Levites, Josabad, son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, son of Benoi, were also with them. Everything was verified by number and weight, and the total weight was recorded at that time. They had accountability, financial accountability. And accountability, especially financial accountability, is something that is largely neglected in many American churches today. Somehow, Christians have come to believe that it's not nice or not Christian to require accountability. And nothing can be further than the tr- from the truth. Here in the Old Testament in Ezra 8, you have financial accountability practiced. According to verse 33, there were four men who counted and watched the silver and gold artifacts of the temple. In the New Testament, financial accountability is also practiced. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he's taking up an offering. This offering is to go to help poor Jewish Christians in the Holy Land who need extra assistance. Well, how's the money going to get there safely? How do we know Paul's not going to just pocket it all and fly to Vegas or whatever else he might do with that money? 
How do we know what happens to the money once we give it? It's a great question. It's a question that should be asked. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8. He says to the church, We have sent with him the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. And not only that, but he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gracious gift that we are administering for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We are taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about the, this large sum that we are administering. Indeed, we are, being, we are giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. It is so important today that any organization that you give to, but especially the church, have biblical accountability principles in practice. And I am again grateful that the principles that are in practice today were put into place here at Broadview many, many years ago. Financial accountability ensures that money is not wasted. It ensures that, that ministry efforts are funded to their highest capacity. And most importantly, it ensures that trust is established. And because God's people trusted their leaders in Ezra's day, they were able to worship the Lord freely. Verses 35 and 36, we read, The exiles who had returned from the captivity offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel. Twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams and seventy-seven lambs, along with twelve male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering for the Lord. They also delivered the king's edicts to the royal satraps and governors of the region west of the Euphrates so that they would support the people and the house of God. You know, none of the history that we read about in Ezra chapter 8 would have ever happened if Ezra had not been bold in his faith. So let me ask you a question. Is there something going on in your life where you've been hesitant to boldly obey God? Have you been more concerned about the repercussions that you might face at work or among your friends? Have you failed to stand up for God's honor when God's honor is on the line? Because eh, I'm a little afraid of what others might think. Let me just encourage you to identify what your fears are. Identify what you're afraid of. Take it to the Lord, be honest with Him, and just say, God, I'm afraid of what so-and-so might think. I'm afraid my, my job might be on the line if I, if I obey you. Don't let fear, don't let doubt win the day. If you ask God for wisdom, He'll give it to you. If you ask God for courage, He'll give it to you. And I would end with this statement that there is nothing more courageous than someone He's finally decided, after many hours and days and weeks of thinking about it, to give their heart and their life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many of us in this room, we gave our lives to the Lord at a time where the culture was more agreeable to that. The culture today is very, very much against the Lord Jesus Christ. The culture today is very much against Christians who boldly live for God. 
And so today, if there's somebody that would say, I'm ready to follow after Christ no matter what, I would say that person is a bold person. They have bold faith. And they should be commended 